Awesome. All right, here we go. Let's get started. Uh, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. And then we're going to hop, skip, and jump from Acts 15 um, right at the end there um, through Acts 18, verse 17. And um, let me just give us a quick word of prayer to get us jumping in and focused. Father God, thank you for your word. It's powerful, alive, and we love it and we need it. And thank you for this time that we've had together to just connect and enjoy the fellowship under the banner of your love and, of, and the power of your spirit and in the unity of, of the word that we're together on. So bless our time now as we move in. Let it be edifying to ourselves and to glorifying to you. Uh, we give this all now into your hands in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Hallelujah, Amen. All right. So picking up where um, we left off here, we are running through lesson nine. Uh, as we come to verse 36 here, the Jerusalem council is over. The results are in. People are have rejoiced. And I love, love, love that commentary that Luke offers there. Everyone is in agreement. They're all very happy. They're rejoicing because of the encouragement of that Jerusalem council. Um, not just because they can eat bacon, but because, you know, the law is been fulfilled and they have affirmed that Jesus Christ has affirmed it. And so Paul and Silas are sent off in peace. Paul, he's about to begin what we call as his second missionary journey. Of course, Paul wasn't thinking of it like that. He wasn't like, well, look at me. I'm on my second missionary journey now. <laughs> it wasn't, he doesn't think about it in terms of that, but that's what we go back through, you know, and we label them. And he might have a good kick with us in heaven when he's like, you know what? I really had like four other journeys you didn't even know about. But anyway, whatever. We know it as the second missionary journey. And so as we reflect back through this passage, I want us to be thinking about the way that God is elevated. His plans are moving forward. But I also want you, as you're looking for that again, to see how Satan is active and how he is attempting at every stern to stern. Well, maybe stern also, but to, to stop and to wreck and to discourage and to distract them and uh, just to see this parallel uh, movement through each of the passages as we move forward. So um, right here in verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return. Let's visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and, and see how they are. They've planted those seeds. They've given them the, the, the doctrine and the gospel, and they've They've opened up these churches and they want to go back and check in on them. I love that heart of, of Paul um, wanting to make sure everything's going on okay. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Here we go. But Paul, verse 38, Paul thought it best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them. Um, to the working, you can see here on the screen, I've given you the Greek word for withdrawn, which is a pretty strong word. There are other words that Luke could have written and chosen for this to get the point across, but he actually chose this very strong word, um, aphistame, and it is the same word we, we translate apostatize, apostatize. Um, and so he's not saying that Mark apostatized in his theology. He abandoned God. He didn't apostatize in that way. But it's a very strong way to say Mark did something that, that basically equated to a falling away of some kind in terms of the unity of the group. So this isn't just like Mark having one little small thing. Um, because Paul makes a pretty big deal about it. Whatever reason, okay, we don't know. But he looked back in a sense. 
Mark did. Um, Jesus had said in Luke 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus was really serious about this. And that's what Paul basically feels that Mark has done. So uh, Luke says he did go with them to the work that they had, didn't go with them to the work they had in Pamphylia, and Paul was really upset about that. And uh, he didn't trust Mark. Something was up. And um, he was concerned about it moving forward and any disruption that might come up again because if, if they have to, you know, have Mark, who's dragging his heels, or turning back in a sense. So here's Barnabas, the encourager, and we get the sense that there are very two distinct personality styles between Paul and Barnabas. Paul is strong, and he's firm, and he's brave, and he's tackling things head on. He's opinionated. He's even forceful in the way that he approaches his life. He's already been through a lot. He doesn't want some weak-willed turncoat with him, basically, all right? Mm -hmm. And then there's Barnabas. And maybe he's the one with the softer side. Maybe he's the more patient of the two. And, and he overlooks other people's shortcomings, perhaps. And he sees potential in Mark. In spite of the reality that Mark did apostatize, um, did withdraw from them, um, he's just more willing than, than Paul is to move on and take Mark with him. But Paul's not having any of it. So guess what? Verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Now, the contention was so sharp between them. It was a paroxymos, and I put the Greek word there up on the screen for you. Um, so in other words, it doesn't say they shook hands, gave a nice little hug, fist bumped, and were on their way. They had a sharp disagreement about this. And... Um, so this, again, is a, is a word choice we have to be careful of and, and be mindful of what, what Luke is saying here. This isn't Luke minimizing. This is Luke saying, this is a big deal. They were really at odds with, with each other here. And so they have this big, strong disagreement. And so when they departed, they departed. And there wasn't a lot of love there. Um, they maybe had even some sad feelings or maybe even some bitterness. We don't really know. But um, they, they take off in their two directions. Barnabas takes Mark, sails to Cyprus. Who's from Cyprus? Do you remember? Barnabas is. Barnabas is going home. He's going to his home island, right? He's going for a little island time um, with Mark. I mean, there was a church there to, to, to nourish. Uh, but the point is that is his home, and he's heading back in that. And maybe he had some things to take care of there as well. You know, I always think about why details are included. I remember the Holy Spirit has inspired every single word of the Bible. The authors write, though, from their own vocabulary. You read it when you read how each book of the Bible is written with a strong personality sense. You read the Gospel of Mark, and then you read a chunk out of Mark, and then jump over and read a chunk out of Luke. You will feel the difference. Mark is very short, punctuated sentences and zip, 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 zip through everything. In fact, he uses the word immediately a lot in the word of Mark because that's how he writes. Luke is descriptive and big, fancy words. He's educated. He's a doctor. You'll feel the difference. So the Holy Spirit inspires, but he inspires the people within their own experience and within their own skill set. And all of the words are prompted and all the concepts are guided by the Holy Spirit. So why, I ask you, why include this battle of the wills breakup? Why include this little part of the story? Two reasons I've, I've thought about and I'd like you to consider as well. Number one, I think this is an encouraging reminder to us as Christians that we all still have our personalities. When you became a Christian, when you accepted Jesus as your Savior... You receive the Holy Spirit. You do not receive a personality transplant. You are who you are. You have your skill set. You have your personality style. You have the way you tend to look at the world. If you tend to be a pessimist, you still got that. If you tend to be an optimist, you still got that. 
If you if you tend to be someone who gets in and gets driven and gets her done, type A personality, you're still that person. So we see these personality styles, just because they have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean they, they have their personality transplanted. Um, number two, as long as we don't sin and harm each other with gossip and slander and comparing, we're allowed to disagree in our methods, in our approaches, even with people we choose to do ministry. We're allowed to have strong opinions about how to best proceed and with whom to proceed. It is not mean of Paul. Shame on you, Paul. You're not being nice to Mark. No, Paul's making a call. This is the type of person I would like to work with. I see poor behavior in Mark. I don't want to work with him right now. That's not shame on you, Paul. That is Paul making a judgment call in that moment. And I love the freedom that this gives us to think, oh, okay, don't be a jerk to anybody. Don't be unkind. Don't gossip, but move forward in the spirit and trusting that trusting the Lord to, to help us to do that in grace. So verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And again, we don't see a split in the church here. Just two teams now going on. Um, the brothers commended them to the grace of the Lord. And Paul doesn't lose effectiveness. He goes on, quote, strengthening the churches. So this isn't something bad that happened and everything falls apart. So consider then that the Holy Spirit uses this touchy situation for us to see that godly people can disagree and not destroy. We can disagree and not destroy if we're focused on the work of the gospel. If our focus is on my personality style and getting everything done the way I want it done, then yeah, we're going to have issues. If I do that to the exclusion of Susie Q and Kathy, well, there is an actual Kathy always use my person, my imaginary person, Karen, I use my Karen, Susie and Karen and Tommy and Billy, making up names. There we go. I got to go up with better ones. We work together. We don't destroy. We can disagree, but we don't destroy. So godly people can have strong opinions and they can even get into it. You don't have to let it fester. You don't have to let it become, um, bitter. You know, later on, Paul elevates, um, Mark. And he mentions him in, in Corinthians. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians uh, 9. I don't have the verse here for you. I'm just going to read it. Timothy, come and be with me. Demas has forsaken me and, and uh, having loved the present world. Luke alone is with me. And by the way, when you come, would you bring Mark? He's profitable to me. So Paul moves on. Mark grows up probably a bit, matures. And, and Paul's like, bring him back. I want, I want to be with Mark again. You know, Mark's, um, Jesus uh, writes the gospel of Mark, and so he's no slouch. He gets the job done, and um, so we, we're thankful. Um, he, scholars also believe that, that Mark was very instrumental in working with uh, Peter um, in, in writing um, First Peter and Second Peter probably as well. All right, so it's comforting. It's a great passage because it's, it's just nice to see that the early church is interpersonal relationship problems, and we can look back on them and say, gosh, we don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> Gee whiz, I'm glad we've come so far. We've matured so much. But they were human. They forgave. They restored. And now, listen to this. Instead of one missionary team, they've got two. So Satan tries to get in there and mess it all up. But really, it's like, you know what? Guess what? Now we got two missionary teams heading on out. Verse 16. And it feels like I jumped around. Oh, Paul chose Silas, blah, blah, blah. Derby Lystra. Oh, <laughs> Missing a, I'm missing a big passage here. They went off on their way. Oh. Did I miss a slide on my... On my uh... 
I'm going to pet. There we go. All right. So Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. So Paul, because of this split, he ends up getting to meet Timothy. And we know that's an important relationship he has. Timothy's the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places where they all knew that his father was Greek. So we find out a little bit later about Timothy's mom. Here, Luke says she's a Jewish believer, but in Paul's letter to Timothy, we find out her name is Eunice. Eunice, and his grandmother's name is Lois. She's a believer. Father's a Greek. So here we have this half Jew, half Gentile. And think about it. Perfect choice for Paul's ministry. Someone who can be in both worlds, Jew and Gentile. And think, 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 ladies. Put on your mom hat if you can right here. Or your daughter hat. And how you would feel even if this was a brother of yours. But think about this. In terms of the faith of Eunice, the verb tense that Luke uses when he writes about Timothy's dad indicates that the father was probably dead. If you go back and read how how it's written out there, that makes Eunice a widow. And now here comes Paul, whose most recent missionary journey experience involved being left in a bloody keep and being stoned in another town. And she's willing to let her son Timothy go with Paul. That's a faithful mom. All right, go Eunice, right? So in addition, Timothy, he's no slouch either. He's got remarkable character, strong commitment, and he's very willing to do something extremely unnecessary, really, considering the Jerusalem Council, the decision that had just literally been made. He gets circumcised. An adult man getting circumcised is no small thing. It just speaks to the level of commitment. That was probably a welcome sign to Paul, having just been with Mark. <laughs> he's like this I, I like this guy Timothy you know he's willing to go all out literally and um, not so much with Mark um, so he's, he likes this new kid Timothy very strong character and Paul loves him and later he even refers to him as my true child in the faith which probably meant really a great deal to Timothy considering he was orphaned by his father so why why if the Jerusalem council had just decided they don't have to do any of this why does he get circumcised well it's not for legalism it's for audience all right, it's an audience for the Jews who were, who, who, were um, who were still very legalistic in their approach. But if he hadn't been circumcised, the Jews would never have allowed him into this, the synagogues with Paul at all. He was a Jew, but he was a Greek. And, and by his father being a Greek, that meant he was considered basically a Gentile. All right. So taking this extra step, getting circumcised, going that extra mile, ensure that he'd be accepted by the Jews as he goes and travels with Paul. That's a big, big deal. It increased their testimony. It bolstered their testimony. It gave them an audience that they really needed to have. Little side note for those of you who want the alert in the lesson coming up in lesson 10, you're going to be reading about Titus and we're going to meet Titus a little bit more um, coming up in these letters. Um, But anyway, unlike Timothy, Paul makes a point of saying, but neither Titus was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. So Timothy does get circumcised. Titus, not at all. Why? Because Titus was a Greek. He wasn't half and half. But there was no need for him to finish it up and and do the Jew thing. He, He wasn't a Jew anyway. All right. So there we go. All right. So, um... As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance and the decision that they reached by the apostles. This is that exciting um, Jerusalem council. So um, the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Paul and Silas, having split from Barney and Mark, who are now on the island, Cyprus. um, I I have this slide up here. I'm going to walk you through this map 
And maybe you have a map in your Bible you want to just look at and get a little closer up view. I know it's hard to see it from there. But we've got this island of Cyprus, and they're moving through Syria and Cilicia. We've got the map here going. They meet up with Timothy and Lystra after Derby, and now they're off. All three of them, and the Holy Spirit begins treating Paul and his companions like a sheep being a shepherd. I want you to watch the path that they take, and I want you to think about what a shepherd does to guide his sheep. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing in this sense. Uh, what does a shepherd do to get a sheep where he needs him to go? Well, he prevents him from going where he doesn't want him to go. All right. And he might use a dog to channel around on one side. Him. He might use his long staff. He might even shoot a little pebble off, right, to get him to go. But he does this. And so they scoot along this way. They were through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And so here is Asia. No speaky. Don't go to Asia. And then they come to Mysia. They're tempted to go to Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So they hop, skip, and jump. Now, do you see that thin line that they're treading right there in between the two no zones? That's the Holy Spirit. Don't go here. Don't go there. So Paul goes, all right. Okay. All right. So Paul just keeps on going until he makes it to Troas. And why stop there? Well, because the next is the Aegean Sea. Can take another step. The Holy Spirit shepherded them right to Troas. Think about it. Have you ever felt like this in your life? You don't know if, if you should go here, you should go there, take this job, take that job. How do you know the will of God? What should you do? Where should you go? Right? Well, take a cue from Paul. Move. Just keep moving. Just keep moving. Do anything that's in God's service, and he'll move you where you want to be. So it's here, right there, that something really big in Troas um, begins to happen. And Paul gets this vision and, um, and the man appears and he calls out to him, um, come to Macedonia. And so Paul's like, I guess we're going to Macedonia. I got this vision. Ta-da! The God is going to be revealed. And so off to Europe, they, they go. They've got this off this vision and uh, off they go. So they set sail from Troas. They made all the way um, to uh, Samothrace. And here are Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, and they've jo joined up and they've responded to this vision of this man who says, come and help. And instead of meeting a man, they don't even meet a man. If it was me, I'd get there and go, oh man, I totally thought that was a vision. I, I thought I, I must've misread it, or maybe he was in a toga, but really it was a dress. You know, I would be like second guessing everything, right? Um, so on the Sabbath day, they went outside to the gate. Um, to the riverside where they were, where they supposed there would be a p place of prayer. And I've written the Greek word here for pr this place of prayer, which is the one Greek word prosuke. Prosuke, you can write that in the margin of your Bible. It's a really good, important word. It's only used twice in the Bible, and it's both times by Luke, both times in Acts. The next one's going to come up in a little bit. Um, but they, they sat down, he says, and we get the we here. Why? Who's joined them? Luke. So uh, we sit down there. And, um, and speak to the women who had come together. Where does Paul, listen, where does Paul always go first when he goes into a new town? Where does he always go? Synagogue. The synagogue, the synagogue, the synagogue. But here he is outside the city. He's not at a synagogue. He's at a prosuke. He's at a place of prayer. This is not a synagogue. Because in order for a city to have a synagogue, they had to have at least 10 men. So this means, if you know that, oh, there's not even enough Jewish men here. So all the women are gathering together, all right? And I love how when Paul and his company arrive, they see the woman, but they start asking right away for a man, right? No. I mean, that was the vision, so you kind of expect that he would. He does see a man in his vision. But why doesn't Paul just skip over the women and ask for a man? 
Maybe try to describe his vision to them and see if they know. Well, he was kind of wearing a reddish toga and he had a short beard. Like, describe the guy in the vision. No. You see, Paul's on a mission to preach the gospel, not preach the gospel to men. He's on a mission to preach the gospel to all men. And God's brought them to a group of women. And so Luke writes, verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Oh, Lydia, love, love, love you. This is going to be so great. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Look up here on the screen. You will see a little bit about this, the purple goods. She's a, a worshiper of God, and she dealt in these goods. Now, this region is still to this day very well known for these purple goods. Um, the dye was extracted from a fish, uh, a little shellfish, that little mollusk that you see there in the screen. And um, the cheaper stuff was extracted from a plant called a madder, a madder, the madder root. And again, to this day, you can still get it from the exact same um, sources. And so what's interesting is this shellfish, they would have to extract the purple dye drop by drop. One drop per shellfish. I don't know if they had teeny tiny and they would just sit there and squeeze it. I don't know how it worked. But let me read you from this article when I did my homework on this. 3,000 years ago, the Phoenicians controlled trade in purple dyed silks. The gland of the sea snail, Murex, secretes a yellow fluid that when exposed to sunlight turns purple blue. A similar dye, um, the Tyrian purple, was made from the Murex, yielding purple red colors. Both dyes were very expensive. Is that a liter bottle by any chance that you have right there in front of you? Looks, about, looks like it's about a liter maybe. Yes, it is. A liter? Oh, wow. mm -hmm. All right, so hold it up so everyone can see and get a good visual on a liter, or if you can visualize in your brain a, a liter. Very, very, very expensive. If that was filled with Murex dye from this little Murex, this mollusk, in today's dollars, $3 million. Wow. $3 million. By two, right? <laughs> too many all right so she's in this business and, and she was the first one that the lord had in mind it's just really unbelievable the very first believer that we have documented in, in all of europe which is exciting and um you know if god's going to begin a work with a woman you might as well begin with a woman at the top because she's at the top of her game she is a mover and a shaker in that area and the lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by paul and after she was baptized and her household as well she urged us saying if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And man, was she faithful, right? And she prevailed upon us. Now, God had drawn her to him. She was already a God worshiper, and God prepared her heart. She, you can see this beautiful heart of hospitality that she has so that she would receive Jesus. She is ready to go. So listen, maybe you've asked this question. I know I've asked. I think, how, God, how are you going to reach the unsaved people? There are people out there today in, in unreached villages, unreached areas, that how are you going to get to them? And it kind of just feels like, is that unfair for God to condemn people who may not have ever heard the gospel? Let me assure you, number one, if you know the character of God, you know that unfair is not one of his character traits. There is no way that a true heart seeking after God is going to be left abandoned by our loving God. Here's what we have learned over and over and over again in Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch, he had a heart ready and God provided. Cornelius, his heart was ready, God provided. And now Lydia, her heart is ready. And what did God do? He scoots them and don't stop here. Don't go to Asia. Don't go up there. Don't go here. Scoot, 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 all the way over. I need you. And I'm even going to give you a vision about a Macedonian man to get you over there. And he gets there and he meets a woman. 
If their heart is ready, God will provide the way. Never, ever, ever let anyone try to shame our God. Oh, that's a big, mean God of yours. He's going to send those poor people to hell. He will not. If they want to know God, he will bring them to him. So not only does she get saved, but her entire household gets saved as well. So verse 16, as we're going to a place of prayer, this is the word again, prosuke. You can write that in your Bible and connect those two if you'd like to. Um, Luke is now describing this next encounter with another woman. It's like, God, you called me over here to meet a guy. And I got two women you're meeting me with, right? So he's just like on this track here. And the next big story is about this woman. And to the extent that Lydia is a free woman and an empowered woman and um, a business woman in for herself, she's liberated, truly, truly liberated woman. The next woman is enslaved and demonically powered and in business for the devil himself. She's a woman in bondage. So we have a free woman and a woman in bondage. And as they're going to that place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. A little side note on that Greek word there. It actually is a one word, um, uh, python, <laughs> python. And yes, we get the word snake, the python snake. Um, you can look it up later, but it has to do with um, Greek mythology and the mythical serpents uh, that was slain by Apollo. And that had a lot of myths attached to it. But the point is that this particular type of spirit was a divination spirit, a, a spirit that could tell the future. And uh, so this was a unique spirit being named here by Paul, uh, by Luke. Verse 17. Um, she followed Paul and cried, uh, and to end us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now it is significant that the demon uses this name for God, most high God. That was a term that all Gentiles would have understood as well. And you know that coming up in a minute, he's going to be over in Athens and he's going to talk about the statue to the unknown God. They have a sense of gods, and this is the most high God she's screaming and crying about through this demon who um, proclaimed to you the way of salvation. All right, so this was the Gentiles' common way of referring to um, the most high God, and they would have related to this. So is what she crying out, is what she's saying a true statement? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What is Satan doing speaking the truth? Well, listen, he does it all the time. How do you think cults get started? They don't get started on goofy nonsense, some, you know, peanut butter and jelly God. They get started on like actual, a little bit of truth, right? Mormonism, you got Jesus in there. They got God in there. They got Satan in there. They got angels. They got, you know, funny writings and different things like that. Look, truth-ish. Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it. All of the cults have just enough truth to sucker in people who are not thinking clearly about the one true most high God. So remember what's happened so far. Philippi, the Philippians, they're hearing the gospel, they're hearing from Paul and his truth, and then now from Lydia and her whole household. And there's a lot of new believers in Philippi. And um, maybe they're starting to think they're new. You guys, listen, when you were new in your faith, you would have listened to anybody come along and say things to you. You don't have that strong discernment yet to weigh that out. You have the Holy Spirit that will help you, but you don't necessarily have this big strong assurement discernment meter you know that'll go off like bells right so can you see that satan has a sneaky plan here hey these guys are in the same group as this girl she must be part of their group new believers maybe don't know the difference yet satan's not dumb 
Some of Satan's most active and aggressive work is actually done in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled. Just because they say the name of Jesus Christ and they accept their award on stage doesn't mean that actor is a Christian. So let's not be naive about these types of things, all right? So there comes a time when it just doesn't work anymore for Paul, and he's had enough. And he gets annoyed, and he actually shuts it all down, verse 20, uh, uh, verse 18. And, uh, and this uh, she kept doing for many days. So this isn't just like Paul wanders down to the prosuke, and he's like over it in one shot, like many days. Don't you think, why didn't he just cast it out on the very first day? He knew what was going on. Maybe he, she, he thought she would just drop off and leave him be. No, no. Paul's annoyed. Now, I believe uh, this word translated annoyed in the English Standard Version is um, uh, diopaneo. Diopaneo. And uh, I, I'm not real fond of the translation for annoyed. Because when I get annoyed, I look petty with people. I get annoyed with drivers on the road. That's how I feel. I get annoyed with a slow order at, you know, McDonald's, whatever. Annoyed just makes you feel petty. This is not a petty response of Paul though. The Greek word there means, um, to bring on exhaustion, to de- to bring on depleting grief, grief that sucks the life out of you. Okay. And, it, and that grief results in piercing fatigue. That's the Greek definition of this word that Luke uses. So maybe it's better translated in another version. You might have NIV, um, distressed, disturbed, exasperated. Those are some better translations in my humble opinion. All right. So Paul, anyway, greatly annoyed. He's distressed. He's disturbed. He's exasperated. He's depleting his grief. He's piercing his fatigue. He turns and he says to the spirit, he's not talking to the girl. He's talking into her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out the very hour. Listen, listen, ladies, Paul's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been chased. He's been mocked. And at this point, he's depleted and he's having grief sucked out of him. And he's completely fatigued at this point. This is what does him in. This is what gets him over the, pushes him over the edge. Why? Because this demonic spirit brings out, I believe, the mama bear in a sense in Paul. Because he doesn't want these people completely distracted. He's over it because he sees this long-term effect of, uh, of this demonic spirit. So her owners are furious. They attack. And uh, that moves us forward uh, to verse 25. They end up in jail. They're in bondage. That, that girl is free from bondage, basically. And now Paul and Silas are in bondage because they're in jail. But I wonder what Lydia's thinking <laughs> during all, then all the new believers. The slave girl, we never hear about her ever. Never hear her name mentioned. She doesn't get restored. We don't hear of any repentance. We don't have any idea if she converts. But I wonder if the new believers are worried and they're shaking their head like, what is going on? If this was going the right direction, why are the two good guys in jail? All right? It's going to build all their faith. But listen, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they're singing hymns. And, and the prisoners were listening to them. I love that part of it. And this is the verse that inspired our Create and Share to create this playlist for you. You know, even singing at a ball game is very uniting. Maybe a, you think of like a rowdy German bar song and they're clinking their signs together. And they're just singing and everyone's having a good time. Songs bring people together. It does. At a ball game it does. At church it does. But even in secular audiences it does that as well. But you know what? Praise music doesn't just bring people together. It brings the Holy Spirit into the, in the mix. It brings God into the mix. It's beautiful. All right? So they're praising. 
You know, if God is worth praising right now in this little moment, he's worth praising in any situation at all. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. That word there might be translated in your Bible, loosed. I think it's a beautiful word choice there because it doesn't say that their, their chains fell off. They were unfastened. God got involved there. All right, they were, they were loosed. Like when your shoelace is too tight and you reach down, and you have to loosen it up. And we have this sense here that, that God's very involved. The jailer awoke, saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword. He's about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice. Are we really singing that badly? Hmm. He says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer, the jailer called for lights. Put a little mark there on the word lights. It's going to come up again in our next study. Uh, Luke's going to talk about lights there. I just found it very interesting, this, the parallel. You'll pick up on it on your own when you do your studies. Anyway, and trembling with fear, all fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Perfect. Asks the absolute right, most best, amazing question ever. And they said, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your um, household. And they took in the same hour of the night, washed their wounds. They were baptized at once. All his family, the entire household. And they bring him up to his house. They set food before him. And again, the entire household. So we have Cornelius, all of his household. Lydia, all the household. Jailer, all of his household. Crispus is coming up next. He's actually the only Jew mentioned um, and in terms of being saved with the entire household is only Christmas and he comes up in just a minute. All right. So this account wraps up Paul and um, he invokes his rights as a Roman along with Silas. And they give him an apology and a gift card. And uh, thank you for your trouble. Please leave our town. And they ask him to leave secretly, which was not without precedent. Paul was let out of a city once with a, in a basket. He was let out secretly before. But does he leave out secretly this time? No, no, no. He, they say leave and go secretly, and um, he turns around. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. <laughs> it's like boomerang right back in the town over to Lydia, basically to say, "Look, it all worked out, right?" And uh, encourage them. Yeah, I'm sure they were freaking out about all this. These are brand new people, and so he goes back and he, and he completely um, sets them straight and all that. All right. So skipping through chapter 17, we're going to focus on one comment and two moments. One comment and two moments. First, the comment. Now, Paul and Silas were characterized by these people uh, in Thessalonica with a very interesting characterization, which inspired me to flip the page of your lesson upside down. Of course, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Ladies, listen. They've only been to one town. They've only been to Philippi in Europe. And already the events of those few days in one town, the world is convinced these men are turning it upside down. The rumors drifted all the way to Thessalonica, which was over a hundred miles away, by the way. Why? Because the word's out. They're shutting down prophets from idolatry. All right. The thing is, how can a world be upside down that already is messed up? It can't. What these men don't grasp is that Paul and Silas, the gospel they are bringing, isn't flipping the world from right to wrong. They're bringing the news that the world can be made right. They're turning the world right side up, not upside down. The world's already upside down, isn't it? That's why the jailer asked the right question. Listen, that jailer's question was right because it assumes the problem. I need saving. People who are doing fine, living in a world that is fine, don't need to be saved. <laughs> but the jailer realizes that. He realizes 
His world is, isn't just broken to bits all around because it's been an earthquake. It's broken and shattered because of the state of the world is upside down and he needs to be saved. All right? So never forget that. Never forget that, ladies. We have to ask. We have to give the answer to the world that isn't even necessarily asking the right questions. We have to be bold. We have to be clear. We have to be willing to go and do and say and teach. And our own personality is getting involved in the whole situation. All right. So he moves on. He leaves these people. And he heads on over. And uh, he finds this, these people in Berea who were, as it says, more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And listen, the Jews that had just left them back in Thessalonica, they start getting wind of this and they can't even leave it alone. So they march up there to stir up some more trouble. And they start agitating and they start stirring up the crowd. And at this point, Paul leaves Silas and Paul leaves Timothy and he heads off on his own to Athens. And he waits for a while. Meanwhile, instead of taking his me time, Paul realizes where he's at. He's right in the center of intellectual thought in Athens, where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle taught, where the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were. And they're curious. Paul's just a curiosity. They're curious about his new teaching. Um, But they don't ask anything close to what the jailer asked. Instead, they bring Paul to the Areopagus, where Paul addresses them in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So I'm going to pause right here and share a quick story. I was asked a few years ago to participate and bring, um, set up a booth and be a part of a, of a group um, at, who uh, shares like wellness tips and, and alternatives. So there's people who do massage there. Uh, I was doing, doing my essential oils there. Um, and I show up at this place and it's called, um, I don't know, the place of light or whatever it is. Anyway, it's a total heebie-jeebie witch capital. I mean, like, literally, witches were there. Witches and, what are the warlocks? Warlock men and women witches. That the tarot card people had their booth. They had all this different stuff set up. Listen, I I knew a little bit going into this was going to be a hot mess of weirdness. And so I just asked a ton of prayer. I just felt like, you know what? I got the truth. They need the truth. They call themselves a place of light. Temple of light, it's called. They need the light. I got the light. They think they got it. I'm just going to go ahead and go. So I got all prayed up, and I just made sure my table was covered with Bible verses, like three oils and a big old Bible verse. No, three oils and talk about all the oils and how great they are for you and all this stuff. And what I want to encourage you, ladies, is don't be afraid to go into places as the Spirit leads you that are um, pagan. <laughs> I, I hear and see too many Christians getting judgmental about going, uh, staying away from pagan areas. Don't go there if God's called you not has not called you to do that. But please don't shut it down. Paul's in the middle of pagan central. He's he's so close to it that he can read the title on their idols. You get that? So to an unknown God, he notices that. All right. So the God who made the world and everything in it, he gives this point, and this is exactly what happens to me at this little temple of light place. I got to talk to people about where true healing comes from. It doesn't come from the lady who came by me, told me my, my aura was purple. Your aura is purple. I'm like, really? Are you reading my aura? She goes, yeah, I'm reading your aura right now. It's really purple. I'm like, wow, that's cool. She said, I said, what does that mean to you? She goes, you are full of joy. I said, you have no idea. Let me tell you where my joy comes from. It's not purple. It comes from God Almighty. Most, most I got. 
had a chance to share the Lord with her. But it, anyway, that's another story. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Paul proceeds to teach him about El Elyon, Most High God, the same one that the demonic possessed girl was yelling about. He's telling them about that exact God, El Elyon. All right. So their response is mixed. Uh, again, nowhere near the response of Lydia or the jailer who immediately receive and are saved. Some men joined and received and others um, don't. But uh, Luke does take the time to no- make note of Dionysus, uh, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And then um, Paul moves from Athens to Corinth. He finds a Jew. This is such a great way to close our time together here. Listen to this, ladies. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. So boo on Claudius, getting rid of the Jews, you big anti-Semite. He scoots the Jews out of Rome and all of them are pretty upset. That was mean and awful and ornery of Claudius Caesar to do. But what ends up happening as a result of that? Yes, Priscilla and Aquila show up here. So Paul can meet him. God is moving people where he needs them to be. So they can be there for him. And not only that, he could have moved anybody. He could move fishermen there. He could have moved, I don't know, bricklayers, all sorts of trades, leather workers. What does he move? The exact same job that Paul had. He moves tent makers there. So not only does he have people he can hang out with, he got people who know what they can talk about during those awkward silences when you're just getting to know people. I love that. So God brings these kindred spirits, these people who end up befriending him, and he stays there in Corinth for 18 months. And Jesus gives him this vision because he knows it's going to get challenging. The Lord said in verse 9, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. See, Jesus is so sweet. Paul is so exhausted, but he's been pushing on. That demoniac exhausted him. He goes to Athens. He's by himself. He goes to Corinth. God brings Priscilla and Aquila. And then he's dealing with all the junk and the debauchery of Corinth. God meets with him there and he gives him this word. He he said, you're going to be here 18 months. He's there. And he says, don't be afraid. Why? Because Paul was probably feeling afraid. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one will attack you. No one will harm you. I've got many in the city. Priscilla and Aquila, I got them for you, but I've got even many more. Ladies, God's got his eyes on all of us. Never forget that. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you love us. You provide for us at just the exact right time that we need it. And we get antsy and we worry and we reach out and do things on our own. We really need to be patient and wait for you. So we thank you for that reminder in your scripture tonight. Help us, God, as we move forward in these next couple weeks with this next lesson, just to really dig in and understand more about who you are. Thank you and praise you once again for the power of your word. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.